You're listening to the Around the Lens podcast, the home of high-quality, roundtable, visual journalism discussion about the news, topics, and gear related to our career field. Now, here's the host of our show, David J. Murphy. Hello and welcome to Around the Lens, episode 236. I'm your host, David J. Murphy. Joining me this week are my co-hosts, Travis Keyes, a freelance photographer based out of New York. Hello, Travis. I'm not free. I'm so not free. Uh, I charge what I do Lance? on it. <laughs> a cost Lance? Costly Lance? How you doing, brother? How are things in your neck of the woods? Uh, things are great in my neck of the woods. No problems, awesome. no issues. Awesome. Love and life. My neck is good, though, man. Just the top of my neck. You just a little crack, a little crack to the in the time in the time and days we need the the, the masseuse the most. We can't get one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just have exactly. wear a mask. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. Socially distanced masseuse. Two two broomsticks with some gloves on the end. That's right. I think about just about anything would work at this point. <laughs> yeah. You just have a, a small child stand on your back or your neck. That's a work for for us. Ooh, that's great. Just find a small <laughs> child. You- the only reason to have a kid. Right? Uh, that and mowing the lawn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, joining my, joining us, as always, this week is our second co-host, uh, Evelyn Hochstein, a freelance photo She's journalist. first in my eyes. As always. I was going to say most times. Most weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, one slips through the cracks, like last week. Yeah, no, you're very consistent, <laughs> yeah. Evelyn. We really appreciate that. But, yeah, you're, you're our... <laughs> Washington, D.C.-based freelance photojournalist correspondent. So great to have you on. Everything going well for you? Yeah, everything's good. Um, you know, cool. In D.C., it's raining. Like, I don't know. Uh, this hurricane is coming down. It's kind of nice, you know, rainy day inside. Luckily, no protests to cover in the rain, so that's good. I know, right? Yeah, we had quite, quite a lot of rain here in South Korea, actually. Uh, there was actually some landslides and whatnot. 13 wow. people died because of the rain. Oh. So wow. pretty horrible stuff. But uh, let's talk about good news today. We're talking about a new camera gear that came out over the course of the last week or so. Of course, the long-awaited Sony a7S 3 or as I like to call it, the Sony A7GH5, because it's basically a copy of the Panasonic GH5. Uh, and the Canon R5 was, of course, announced a few weeks ago. And has uh, now just been available for release and for purchase. If you can actually get your hands on the the one or two that they actually pushed out to, to folks, um, I'm still waiting on mine, so I'm a little bitter about that. But um, again, you know, awesome camera there. And of course, if you've got the big bucks and you want to spend money, uh, you can get a 12K camera from Blackmagic, the Ursa Mini 12K, Ursa Mini Pro 12K. So another great camera. With all these new cameras coming out, I created a an ATL commentary where I talked about you know the basic question: Are we in the golden age of visual journalism? You know, again, we have these massive and wonderful cameras that you know can do pretty much anything our creativity and our minds can think of. You know, and I think that this means you know basically we're in a golden age. We we have now no limits in terms of what we can produce or create with the the kind of equipment that's out there. Uh, but I'll throw it over to our co-hosts, and you tell me what you think. Do you think we're in the golden age, or you know, is this just uh, my wishful thinking? Throw it over to you, Travis. 
Well, hey, how you doing there? <laughs> Talking cameras? I love cameras. <laughs> so, um, I think, yeah, I think we have a, a wonderful... I mean, you look at... I mean, the whole span of, like, cameras and development up until this day, I think you have more being developed and, and technological breakthroughs in the last, you know, 10 years than you've had in you know, the whole era of uh, photography in itself. Uh, it's pretty incredible, all the, all the stuff that's coming out. And, uh, you know, um, I think that uh, they're starting to push each other. A mirrorless has taken off, and uh, the other the other guys, Nikon and Cam Canon, have uh, really said, you know what, we, we really need to get into this field, and uh, they're, they're producing cameras that are, are starting to uh, rival and even push boundaries. Um, there's, uh, you know, um, it, when, when Canon's saying we're going to stop developing on the, on the, 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 the Mark, you know, four or five line, that's pretty amazing. That's, uh, a lot of people are going, what? <laughs> They've been so used to that camera and wanted to use that camera and love that camera that, uh, that kind of scares them that, uh, that Canon is going full in on the mirrorless and, uh, it would be kind of crazy that they are, but, uh, yeah, even I kind of think that's crazy, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you you look at the you know the the R5, which has 8K, and uh, it obviously is going to be a really good uh, focusing and uh, cam uh, stills camera, and we'll see how how it pushes it. And I don't think it's going to be a practical workhorse in <clears throat> professional video, which is I think I think the the uh, the A7S uh, III will be really kind of a workhorse for video people, but uh, we'll we'll see. It's it's too it's too early on those two to see how they work in the real world, but uh, they both look great on paper, and uh, I'm interested to see what people put out on them. Yeah, no, I mean, the Sony a7S III, if somebody asked me, hey, I need a video camera that can shoot 4K reliably for long um, lengths of time, I would absolutely point them towards the Sony a7S III. I think it's a, a wonderful camera, and also its low light capability is unrivaled. That's that's what's so incredible is if you see just footage of people going out to, like, the beach, like, you know, even uh, I, I had gone out with mine on uh out in california uh near the santa monica pier and you where, where i couldn't see people in front of me suddenly it looks like they're lit up on this a7s3 it's it's like little magic gremlins it's it's truly unbelievable and what amazes me is it's usable iso up into over 100,000 range mm -hmm. i mean it that that's something you just can't find on any other cameras for some reason because of its larger pixel size and it's a 12 megapixel camera and people go oh 12 megapixels which is more than enough for for 4k uh video and stuff like that but they're they're larger pixels and they the way they deal with light and low light and all that uh and absorb it onto the sensor is much better so uh it's it's incredible what that camera can do in low light so you did actually get a chance to i'm sorry go ahead evelyn oh no Keep going because mine's a little off topic oh, okay go i was gonna say so you actually did get your hands on the camera because we were we couldn't confirm that, but now we can confirm you where you did get to play with the camera. We don't talk about that, Dave. Okay. <laughs> oh, excuse me. All right. I thought we were. I thought it was all good now, but all right. Um, I can talk about all the wonderful things in that camera. Okay. All right. So you, you have. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask though, because I'm not the techie person, and I've only tried the A9. So, like, what's yeah. the difference between A7, the seven series? There's, there's, a, there's a huge difference. Uh, the A, the, the A7S uh, is really geared towards video, and S used to stand for sensitivity, and uh, it's a 12 megapixel camera. It's really built to shoot uh, video and low light, and uh, and really kind of take advantage of that sensor and built to do that. It's, it is a uh, video camera that shoots good stills. I mean, they're very solid stills. I took that to Guatemala and shot on the streets of Guatemala at night just with no flashes and strobes and was able to shoot amazing things with that camera in low light. Uh, the R, the, the Then they have the, the A7 series, which has no letter designation, and they're up to the three on that one. 
that is sort of like what you would find a 5D Mark IV or, you know, a 5D Mark III. It's, you know, it's a 20-some-odd 20, 20 megapixel camera. It shoots amazing video. It has great uh, um, uh, autofocus and, and focus capabilities. It's a solid, solid workhorse and an everyday kind of camera. And then you have the R-Line, which is the high resolution. And those are, you know, now the, the 3 was a 42-megapixel camera, and the 4 is a 61-megapixel camera. So, you know, you know when you're talking the A7R 4 that's a 61-megapixel you know, camera. So the resolution on that is really super high, and uh, you can do a lot of things. And it's also, you know, it shoots you know, 8 to 12 frames a second if you needed to, silent shutter. So, I mean, it's a, it's a vast camera as well. And being that high resolution is unbelievable. Yeah. Does the A9 have eye tracking? So the A9 is the beast of the the, the focusing. It, it 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 will focus the fastest on animal eye tracking and human eye tracking. Uh, it it shoots out up to 20 frames per second. Uh, you know, almost, that's almost like video 24 frames per second right there. Uh, it is it is the fastest and and is the work beast in terms of the journalist type of camera, uh, uh, sporting sporting animal. You know, it's 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 an incredible camera, and that's their that's that's their most expensive of those bodies. Evelyn, you got the chance to play with the A9 for your photojournalism work. Did you use the autofocus? I did, and I loved, um, I did the focus tracking too. There's this like focus tracking button on the lens, which is really cool that you can lock on. It makes it really easy because I didn't always find the buttons, maybe just because I'm used to my Canon 5Ds that the, the back, the back buttons were as easy to navigate, but the focus tracking button on the lens was amazing. And yeah, the eye tracking, it was it was really super. Um, and great, I just made a bunch of prints with the stuff I shot on that camera. I love it. I mean, I still love, I still haven't switched, and I love my 5D Mark IVs, but when I heard they were gonna discontinue them, it was, that's pretty shocking. It was definitely like, okay, well now's the time I've gotta jump to mirrorless, which I've been debating, as you guys know. <laughs> But then I keep hearing about the Canon overheating issues. So I'm like, do I want to... But you're not shooting video. You're not shooting video. So you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that at all. And it's in, you know, and that's a, you know, 4K, 60 and and 8K, you know, and uh, and it's usually in around 20 minutes, you know, mark or something like that. A little less on some marks. So you wouldn't have to worry about that at all. And you wouldn't Um, have to worry about it if you're shooting 4K 30 as well or 4K 24. They, those don't are affected by overheating, thankfully. Yeah. So I, I really want to get my hands on it, and then the decision will be made. But, I mean, I was about ready to jump to Sony. I, I really did love that, love shooting with it. But just because I'm comfortable already with the fire, with the, Mar- the Canon system, it may be easier. So we'll see. <laughs> and from what I've heard, the, the eye tracking in the, in the Canon is supposedly very, very good. Uh, and people are touting it. It's, it's really really good i know in the first iteration of the eos r when they came out with the eye tracking people were like ah, not so good and then they came out with an update on the eos r and it became much better and i think the the, the r5 is is even better yeah and, in, okay. and people who actually have used both cameras um have said that the eye tracking is better on the r5 so you know but then again that's a, a year difference between two cameras you know it's like comparing of course it's going to be better it's more advanced you know i'm sure the next Sony is going to be better than the R5. So it's just this sort of, you know, game of incremental improvements. And that's kind of like one of the things I talked about is that, you know, we are going to see improvements out of these camera systems in the future. You can't not improve the camera systems. The, the, the board members, the, the shareholders demand it. So they have to come out with new things, and they will. And, and you know, even, even now, these cameras aren't perfect, as we've talked about. 
Um, Sony could definitely improve their IBIS. That's one of the criticisms of, I've, I've heard of the Sony a7S III. Canon, of course, it overheats like there's nobody's, you know, nobody's business. So um, definitely we need to see improvements in the future, but I, I definitely see them as more incremental versus monumental. But, you know, what do you think are some future improvements? You know, if you look into your crystal ball or what you going to kind of wish list, what do you want to see in the future of, you know, stills and video cameras? Uh, what are you, Evelyn, first? Uh, okay. <laughs> my crystal ball, my wants are simple. I want like this autofocus perfection, okay. you know, low, okay. Really low light has improved so much. That has been such a game changer for me. So the better quality and low light, I get low light. You still look, whether the camera does a good, jo- good job or not, you need decent quality light to make a decent image. So if it's just all murky and dark, you know, it doesn't always, it doesn't always help, but the best low light capability and definitely uh, quick autofocus. Yeah, quick, you know, quick autofocus and maybe better autofocus and low light. Those would be my dream, my wishes. And they're pretty much coming mm-hmm. true. I mean, it's improved so much. So, you know, um, you know, we're close to we're close to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, but, I, I haven't had the chance to use the A7S III, but everything I've seen, and of course, I've been absorbing every single piece of content I can find <laughs> online about these cameras, partially because I still haven't gotten mine and I'm obsessed with having it. Uh, but every, I watch like every single unboxing video. But yeah, I mean that video by Philip Bloom, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, that's a pretty remarkable example of what the camera can do both in low light and with uh, the slow motion. That's the, the A7S one. Right, the Now You Can See 2 or Part 2, where yeah. he shows off. Maybe yeah. a little bit too. They're still kind of heavy. And uh, the thing about the, the Sony that I didn't love was the hand feel, even though the A9 II was way better than the A9 mm-hmm. one. I like Canon's hand yeah. feel a little bit better. But, okay, those are all my wishes. I hope you so all just better low light and, and better autofocus. Yeah, they're very good now. But, you know, you asked me for my, like, you know, top dream list. I mean, we're close. You know, I, yeah. I think, you know, if, if we could have a lot of what the a7s3 is doing but with higher resolution and, and and you know that would probably be the only thing that i would say i would want out of that camera because again i'm looking at the you know the r5 and it's still my camera of choice over the a7s3 because i want that high resolution stills capability in addition to the video capability even though i know it's not as robust and reliable as the a7s3 but for my needs it's good enough but I, like I said, I would tell a wedding photographer, videographer, definitely don't get the R5 for wedding videography unless you're okay with 4K30. And that's like, you know, Gerald Undone, he did his uh, very extensive testing of both cameras. And that's kind of thing you have to go into the mindset of don't think of this as like an... Which one, which one, did, he, which one did he order? <clears throat> he ordered three A7S3s for his studio. Okay, thank you. Move, move on. Right, I'm not. <laughs> again, I'm I'm saying for his needs. I'm teasing. Okay. I'm teasing. Yeah, I'm teasing you. <laughs> yeah, again, if video is your primary need, the A7S three is it. Yeah, and you know, it's like, yeah. you know, Evelyn, you talk about low resolution or low light capability. I mean, the A7S three is a magnificent low light camera, but do you want to sacrifice yeah. resolution for that? And I think, no, I wanted I wanted high resolution, so that's why I went with the Sony, yeah. which is higher resolution. It is, it and is, but, you know, they looked at, it. Tony Northrup looked at both the 61 megapixel stills from the A7R4 and the R5, and, you know, there really wasn't much of a difference there, so, you know, it's it's more megapixels, no, not for but the, it's... No, not, not for the untrained eye, that's true. Okay. 
<laughs> I need to go to eye training. I need to go. I'm I need totally playing. I need, with, I'm totally playing with you, Dave. I'm playing with you. It's the fun Sony Canon rivalry. I think they're both great cameras. Yeah, I need to go get some eye training then. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the I like the hand feel of the Canon cameras, and I'm looking forward to getting that again. It is. It does feel really good in the hand. The, the ergonomics and the way designed it is 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 really a nice camera. For some reason, it just feels right, and that's that is true. And uh, between you know, and Evelyn is totally right. From the A9 to the A92, they they did improve the hand grip and all that stuff. But uh, there's something that the way the way they designed that uh, Canon that it feels not that it doesn't feel like a mirrorless anymore. It just feels like another you know uh, camera, and uh, it's it's they really did nice with the ergonomics on that. Yeah. Have you gotten a chance to to hold the R5 or I have. Okay, cool. What what did I mean besides? I mean, did you get a chance to shoot it? Did you? I mean, did you play with the menus? What were your? Because you know, I, I haven't spoke to anyone who actually has touched the camera. So, yeah, no, it's uh, uh, and, and it's same thing. Um, the Sony uh, A7 S3 uh, has improved their their menu system and, and has a touch menu now that uh, that Canon has implemented from their, their from the get go on the EOS R. Their their touch screen and uh, screen implementation and uh, use of the screen is bar none probably probably the best. And that goes back to the 5D Mark IV, which I think is the best you know intro to really you know that that amazing touch screen uh, that incorporates the menu and everything that you want to do on it, from zooming to touch focus. It, it, they nailed it. They nailed it, and uh, it's it's fabulous. Uh, it, it works fantastic, and now finally Sony is you know doing the full uh, you know uh, adjustable uh, pull-out uh, screen and all of that, uh, which is you know when we've been yelling for for years and years and years. But I mean, with that, the, you know, uh, there's there's a certain amount of when you're shooting professional that that screen, if you're in, on the go and you pull it out to the side and you turn it and you're you know running around, it it, it can break. And so there's times where you want to leave it in and you have to remember to put it back in and it's uh it's just one more hinge that uh people like oh I, this could break but if you're on video it's a necessity to have it so and also if you're getting old and you want that low shot and not lay on the ground it's a necessity dave you're gonna love that <laughs> hey now hey it's now. the best thing ever well you know i, I, I need it, talking to some people who were talking about the camera just for its photo capability and they were saying it's, even for yeah. them the flip out you know adjustable screen is really convenient for getting those low shots and the high shots i oh. use mine all the time on my gh5 it's which came assess- out in 2017 the uh, you know for uh, for that all the time so you know i've been living in the future it makes go to different kind of angles to get stuff and you know just by holding that tilt screen you're just turning here and just going up and down and getting down to the ground and not having to lay on the ground it's it 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 changes and speeds up your workflow like I couldn't get that ground shot unless I laid on the ground with my 5D Mark IV. Yeah, I'd literally have to lay on the ground, look through the viewfinder, get as low as the camera to see what was going on, and uh, with you know the 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 EOS R, the you know the, or the five or the the, the A7S3, now that it has the fully articulating screen, you can do anything. It's great. That's right. Yeah, I know. I I live that life. I had the 5D Mark II and every other regular camera yeah. before yeah. that. You know, even back in the day when you didn't have a screen on the back of your camera when it was just using yeah. film. <clears throat> the good old days um but yeah i'm excited to see in, in terms of like crystal ball type stuff i mean you know again improved ibis better low light better focus but i do like i think think the focus is magic on like the videos i've seen of people who have shown the the canon r5 in action like oh my god that's that, yeah I, I, i'm I most blown away by that 
that and the, the photos. Yeah, I could care less almost about the video because yeah. you know, again, I'm going to keep the R, I'm going to keep the GH5 for video. It's going to be <laughs> like my video camera, and this is going to be my stills camera. Right. So back like the old days yeah. when I had yeah. the 5D Mark II and was switching to Panasonic, I'm just going back to that. <clears throat> yeah, and people are, you know, it, it, like the Canon, like the Sony, the the the, the Ibis uh, is um, the the a lot of the problems that people want improvement on is is incorporating lenses that either have you know Ibis or don't have Ibis and and, and how they talk to each other and and how they they, they function and all that. So people are still, you know, they they have little ways to go to to, to perfect that and still push it to to greater functionality. Right. Absolutely. Um, hey. So, yeah, nothing happened there in the, for the last five minutes, so that's great. Um, <laughs> so, again, any, any last comments about uh, the golden age of visual journalism, or shall we move on to our next topic? The golden age of uh, cameras. Well, cameras are used for visual journalism. And that's the, 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 oh, dude, the, we're not we talking went, about we the golden age of cameras. That. We're golden age of cameras, yes, but in, in terms of the way it you know, helps out visual journalism that you can do anything pretty much. I feel, with your I feel, I feel like we didn't even discuss that. Sure, we did. Yeah, <laughs> we focused on the technical, but I, my, my, I was going to add. We, I think we are because just social media accessibility to cameras, be it on your iPhone or an actual camera, um, how we consume visuals. You know, we are just inundated. So I would say that access and the sort of broad how how. Um, much more people who can like add to the visual literacy of you know anything that's happening. Hasn't that destroyed it at the same time? Well, there is <laughs> definitely there's a lot of, there are a lot of cons on this pro con list. Now, now we just opened up a whole new topic that could go on and on. Like this is a this is a full episode right. in itself. This one, um, right? And the dangers and manipulation, all of that. But right. I think the fact that um, you know we just are able to access so much more makes it you know and see other people's points of view and perspective or things that you can't always get to and and the cameras are so great so even like the most basic amateur can still take a really high quality image so absolutely I, yeah i think we are I mean, in a just place. just look what you know the iphone video wise can shoot which is spectacular and uh broadcast quality in most state and they're, they're they are using it at, in that most cases especially now that you know covid you know you have all, all these Porters from home, <laughs> they couldn't get uh, good cameras that are on iPhones now, or different ways, and it's it's, it's incredible what you, you can do now. Definitely, yes. absolutely. From the very top, you know, with the new cameras that just came out, to of course the very bottom with your cell phones, you know, there's nothing you can't capture in any sort of way you want to do it. You want slow motion, you want 8K, you want low light, you want supreme autofocus, you got it all right now. It'll get better over time, but I can't think of major things that will happen besides, you know, again, things getting better that will make visual journalism uh, more accessible and capable for all of us. Definitely. All right. I agree. Cool. Uh, well, let's go ahead and move on to our next topic then. Um, we're talking about the World Press Photo Organization. So they recently published a photo of their team and some folks – uh, Anana Kofi, I'm gonna, I'm gonna even try her, pronounce her last name. Uh, basically said, oh, you know, world press photo so white, so to speak, because their entire board is white. And so then they made the comment about, well, you know, this is institutional racism, right? You know, you've got an entire board of people who are all the same race who are making these decisions, not to, you know, of course, 
mentioned the fact that, you know, I think the World Press Photo Organization is in like the, the Netherlands or Sweden or something like that, which is more predominantly white. But again, you know, there's diversity amongst all populations, right? So should the board represent diversity amongst the world? If you're going to call yourself the World Press Photo Organization, shouldn't your organization or the folks who make decisions in your board, your supervisory board, reflect the diversity of the world? Um, what are you guys' thoughts? Do you think that the, the photo board is at a disadvantage because it doesn't have anyone of color on their, their team? Or do you think perhaps there is maybe a bit too much looking into this and that we should just focus on you know, the skills and capabilities of the people who are on the board and we shouldn't try to necessarily pick like, okay, we need a person of this color, a person of this color, a person of this ethnicity, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like you got to have uh, the diversity bingo, so to speak. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's very important that the three white people here discuss this. <laughs> I know. We're going to get called out. <laughs> Obviously they need diversity. <laughs> including ourselves we do too but um you know i mean it's not like what you're saying like you just automatically go and you pick somebody but it's what's happening now is we're realize we're realizing stupidly i hate to even use the word realizing but we're taking a look and at all of these institutions and we're like it's a wake-up call like hello and it's right there in your face like no we haven't been diverse enough or we haven't it is the world press photo. That's that's a really good point. I mean, it, it is taking, you know, entries from all over the world, but we do need to look inwardly, and it's a good lesson. And I don't think the answer is just saying, okay, let's quick, like, hire somebody, of, you know, just hire more diverse staff, but it's, like, something that we need to institutionally change. And I think that's the point of everything, the exercise that's going on right now, that this is systemic or in every nation. And look, you know, in, it is in Amsterdam, the world press photo, it's a different uh, racial makeup than other countries like the United States. But, you know, there are non-white people in the Netherlands, obviously. And I'm sure there's some non-white photographers as well. And, um, yes, I think the World Press photo probably should be, um, you know, more diverse. Because it's representing photojournalism. And photojournalism is inherently a diverse topic. Look at the majority of winners. They're from, our, you know, they're from... I, I, I would, I'm just, I'm guessing, I can't say this with fact, but if you look at like the wars and atrocity, really like hardcore photojournalism, it probably comes from uh, places where the majority of the subjects are not white often, um, historically. So we should, you know, be aware, pay attention to that. That's my take on that. So my opinion on this as being someone that actually is uh, a chairman on a, a photo community board of a American photographic artists. We're dealing with the, this exact kind of issue, and Evelyn, it brings up very good points. You can't instantly say, all right, you know, let's look at our board, and, uh, and, and but you have to. You can't say, all right, let's uh, put someone uh, in different positions of color. You know, it's like a, you can start to make steps to do the right thing and change your board to morph into that. But there's a lot of people there that are there. And you can't look away from the, the fact that, you know, whether they're white or not, they're, they're trying their hardest to serve 
the community and do the right thing, uh, especially on my board. Uh, and uh, so steps we take are to start an advisory committee uh, immediately uh, uh, on diversity uh, and incorporation and, and inclusion uh, on so that uh, anything we do, we can you know use them and uh, make the right steps and, and get the right viewpoints. Uh, so I think you can immediately kind of make, take the right steps to do the right thing and get the right feedback from that group that you're trying to do and uh and unfortunately you know it's like it's like i'm gonna have a you know as a white male have a different viewpoint than someone that's a black female or anything like that so you need to get those different opinions because you know it's we're just not going to see through someone's eyes the same way so you need that kind of feedback from them to to know what uh to do and what the right thing to do and what, you know, sometimes you just don't even know what they're looking for, what they, or, you know, how they feel or, you know, or, or the culture or, you know, or, or, or so small, subtle things that are important to them or, or to us and how that changes the dynamic. So I think it's so crucially important to, at this stage, is to really start having those conversations and taking the steps. It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take a long time, but we can get lead today and try and do the right thing. You said you are putting together an advisory committee. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of process? Sure. Um, there's certain people in the community, and and for me, it's it's very important, you know, to to understand where if 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 I look at my my um, say say in New York City, I look at my membership, and I see well, it's it's actually a lot of older white men or uh, older you know or younger female, whatever it be, and go well, why don't I have this part of the community or that part of the community why am i not reaching you know transgender or why i'm not reaching uh um any kind of you know, maybe i don't have enough asians or i'm not representing them properly like how do i find someone that has an important voice in that community bring them on to me to say hey listen i voice i think your voice needs to be represented would you come in with us and uh help guide us and be an advisor to how do we kind of outreach and do the right things uh and and make it so that you're community feels welcome and wants to be a part of our community because we all want the same thing we all want to you know to represent and benefit and and be a provider for you know photographers to benefit to learn to uh be more successful in everything they do so i think the more people that you bring under that uh, umbrella and can get their voices uh it's very important so i'm curious are you selecting the people for the committee or the advisory board or is it sort of a call to action it's both. Saying. It's absolutely both. I, I we've certainly you know a, as a board we I, you know like we you first have that first discussion like uh, do you know anyone do you know, like and then talk to them there the more people you can find in the and and I direct it you know so if uh, you know I know that one person is you know fabulous and maybe hair and makeup and photography they might have 15 people that you you wouldn't have even thought of because you know I'm I'm slightly different than what you do but I deal with your people every day yeah. you know so it's it's just you know letting those rings kind of help you find uh, outside of your own normal little uh, enclave. You know, uh, Evelyn, has there been any sort of yeah? You know, I know we've talked about this. I think actually this exact thing we've already mentioned. For Wapow, but you know, I think you know Wapow might want to consider uh, diversifying into men. You know, there's no shame. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyways, but you know, I'm all for diversity, and I think it's important and essential actually to successful organization. Uh, organization. I mean, there is strength in diversity, uh, absolutely. But is there something you've said? You know, like you said, for diversity for diversity's sake, right? You know, it's just basically you're choosing. You know, 
getting everyone, is it almost to the point where it's arbitrary? You just, you're trying, like for instance, there was a great uh, satirical video I saw about the IT community, you know, in Silicon Valley, where it's like you have a room full of people and like, I need, okay, every single different race, but they all have to agree with the boss. You know, it's like that kind of thing where it's like, uh, you can be of all the different, you know, diversity, but you have to think the same way. And I just, you know, I want to make sure that we're, we're being diverse for the right reasons, you know, as opposed to just being diverse because we have to be diverse. I, th I think this show should be diverse, and I'd like to set up an advisory committee right now uh, with the, the show hosts who are here. So obviously you are a representational community of the people who host this show. So let's, uh, let's, let, we'll have the adv advisory committee meeting right after the show. That's that's the first step. Uh, no, I mean, you always have to take the first it's step. It's absolutely a concern I've had for this show, and that's why I've tried to diversify. You know, this year and have a lot more women voices and, and opinions on the show. And probably in the next year, I will be pushing more towards getting a diversity of race on the show. So look for that. You know, in the next coming year, after we hit episode two hundred and fifty and beyond, um, there could be a shakeup in with regard to you know, the kind of faces and voices you see and hear on this show on a regular basis. That's him subtly saying he's getting rid of us. Not getting rid of you guys. No. Uh, but, you know, again, that's that's when I can, you know, I've, I've talked to you guys about this. I've sent you, you know, I've, I've gotten your opinion or sought your opinion on the, the topic. But, you know, and we can talk about this a little bit in the future of the show later on. But, you know, again, my thinking is, you know, do we have a show that has new guests or new new co-hosts, new panelists each week, or do we change out the panelists completely, the co-hosts line up completely with different co-hosts? You know, again, what you know, as we go into the fifth year of the show, right? I'm thinking about, you know, again, what you've said and what's been said many, many times on this show is that we're all white for the most part. The majority of the people who are on the show are white, right? So what is my responsibility as as, as a show host? to ensure I'm having inclusive uh, voices and different voices on the show. And that might include changing out the host lineup as we go into the fifth year. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Do you think that's the right move or the wrong move? I mean, what, what do you think? What do you take? I think that you, you have the ability to do whatever you want to do. You're a voice. You want to do that. If you want to include diversity, your guests can be diverse. Okay, and our last story this evening or morning, whenever you're listening to this, uh, we're talking to Evelyn Hochstein about a story wherein a Seattle judge ordered media to share unpublished protest photos with police. Essentially, this was a protest uh, from May 30th where the police wanted evidence, essentially unpublished uh, video and photos from different news media organizations uh, within the Seattle area. And, you know, we're talking about, of course, uh, organizations that are established news, you know, stations and whatnot. Uh, they list here KIRO7, King5, etc. So not necessarily like rando freelance um, photojournalist or whatnot. And they're not looking for content from their cell phones. Let's say that's off limits, but, you know, the content they shot with their professional cameras. Um, so, you know, we've seen stuff like this in the past, but I don't think I've ever seen as sort of a blatant call for imagery um from the you know from the the media and we'll talk about the update of this story in a minute um, but just from the the outset of this initial story what are your thoughts on this evelyn you know if you, if you were or put in a position like this how would you react 
Oh, my immediate thoughts are that it's it's just completely wrong to try to get this kind of information from journalists. There has to be a protection. Um, this may not fall into this sort of traditional, you know, uh, source protection or privilege that, that we are maybe more familiar with. And this is maybe... Um, to some outsiders seems a little bit more, you know, uh, straightforward perhaps. But I think once you get into a habit of requesting this kind of information from journalists, it's extremely dangerous. It is not our job to provide evidence to the police in any way, shape, or form. They have their own methods of surveillance, recording, and um, I just think this is an extremely dangerous slippery slope and absolutely should not even be considered. Right. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, that there's some definitely some misunderstandings of, of the role of media, even in an in instance where there's crime taking place. Uh, now, in the story they mentioned, um, there's some laws like shield laws that exist in Washington state to protect journalists. Is there anything like that in D.C.? For Virginia um, or Maryland, specifically of a that I, I mean, I generally thought that these were uh, across the board that there were laws to protect journalists um, from these kinds of subpoenas, and I do understand that um, these subpoenas happen quite frequently. But generally, uh, the newspaper, you know, the newspaper uh, just declines, or the news outlet declines, and whether uh, it goes further than that, I'm not sure, but I, I don't know specifically about D.C. and Virginia. Right, and you've not ever been in a situation like that, or, or know of a situation like, for instance, within um, some of the publications you've worked for, right? You've never heard of that? Uh, I specifically have not been called upon, but it would not be... Um, I would not be surprised if there haven't been requests because um, in Washington, for example, the people that tried to take down the Andrew Jackson statue, mm -hmm. uh, their photos that were published were used by the FBI and like placed on wanted signs from actual journalists' images wow. that were published. Um, so, you know, I, I have no, I would not be surprised if like, the, you know, the Washington Post or the AP or like whoever had been, had been confronted to this tr information, did it happen or trickle down to me? No, not that I know of, but it would not surprise me in the least because I've, I saw the FBI wanted uh, images. Well, I mean, yeah, once it's in the public stream, I guess they can, you know, they can do whatever they want with it <clears throat> within, right. you know. When dangers, you know, I mean... You know, that's those are the cases when it does endanger journalists, and I, I it does endanger journalists, excuse me. And I find it hard to believe that in that whole public scene of people trying to take down a statue, that the police do not have their own images that they could use. I mean, I think it's really antagonistic to try to use images directly from the newspaper. I would find it hard to believe there weren't other images. Yeah, no, and I think you know, you bring up an important point about it crossing the line with regard to our role there covering the story you know we don't work for the police it's the same reason why like the show live pd didn't publish or didn't um you know publish a, or give the video of the the person who was killed uh during the police stop you know that's the, their reasoning was you know they don't work for the police you know they would provide that content if subpoenaed but they did you know they weren't going to keep it on file forever um for them um so again it it does uh create this blurring of the line because you know once Seattle and, and all these news organizations give up the footage if they even if they're forced to the 
you know, the protesters on the ground or anyone who's being covered is automatically going to think, okay, well, you're just in another arm of the police force. Right. And I think there's perhaps a case that can be made, like somehow you did photograph a murder or something that wasn't a public event. You know, I'm sh- maybe... Not that I even want to go down that road, but these are like public protests and events that are occurring and it would ultimately, like you just said, endanger journalists. It would like pit journalists against the public and and change the role that we play as journalists if our, you know, we're out there reporting what's happening. So we may report or show an image or even write about something um, that people don't want exposed, or maybe it was even a crime. But that is the only extent, you know, that I believe our our work can be used. Because if we, you know, it's like we're an independent party. We just cannot, the police cannot turn to us to do their job. It would make journalism impossible and dangerous. And just wrong. I mean, there just has to be a separation there. Yeah, no, I was thinking, I mean, it really has to boil down to the individual um, photojournalist or, or, you know, documenter, right? Because... If you capture something that is like a heinous crime, right, you know, are you going to be an impartial observer, you know, or are you going to take a proactive stance, you know, especially if, if what you've captured could potentially lead, you know, to someone's arrest if perhaps they, you know, you, you witnessed a murder, right, or something like that. You had that on camera. And, you know, again, we've kind of talked, we've brushed on this a little bit. And I think, again, it, it has to be the circumstances have to be, you know, around what you've captured and your own individual decision to support. And, you know, that's you know, going to be different for a person as opposed to being forced in this instance um, to provide your content. Now, there was an update to this story. Um, the judge had a hearing on it, and his ruling was that he would act as a sort of intermediary, a go-between between the police and the media, he would review the footage and only provide footage that was relevant to the to the police's subpoena. Do you think that that sort of changes the situation anyway, or make it any less sort of egregious with regard to you know the journalist's rights? I think it makes it slightly less egregious in the sense that I believe the judge recognized the danger and saw that there is potential for misuse um, of, you know, the the imagery, the outtakes, and also maybe setting a precedent for this sort of thing. So I think, uh, I I don't know if it's a male or female, but the judge um, probably acted in a way that they thought um, would be, you know, fair and that they would be the only person, you know, and they would limit the scope of um, what was used. So I think Probably the intention, I don't think it's as egregious, but I think just in general, this is something that needs to be avoided at all costs. So I think um, while I disagree with, uh, you know, the judge's idea, I think um, at least they, they the judge was acting in the sense of, of like recognizing, you know, what a slippery slope this is and, and the potential for um, misuse, misuse in the future, you know, um, just just blurring the lines between the role of journalists and, and creating some weird, you know, um, liaison between the law enforcement and journalism, which, um, you know, is not safe for anybody, and that's just not our job. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't agree, but I think, you know, it was a compromise. Right. And, and that, you know, from what I've read in the follow-up story, you know, the news organizations are going to continue to fight this and appeal this, 
I believe they have 21 days to appeal the case. So we're going to follow up with this story after that point and see what the final, final decision is going to be in this case. But, you know, I think that while I, I agree with you, the judge is trying to make a sort of everybody happy in this instance, it does kind of present a slippery slope, right? You know, because it's like, okay, in this instance, the judge is okay. Well, what if the police aren't happy with what the judge gives them? You know, I mean, are they going to continue to push for more and more access? And I think, you know, they might get to a point where, you know, this, you know, this comes up again and the, the, the next judge is like, I don't care. Give, give the, give your Robbie role to the, to the police. I don't care. You know, so it's now it's like, we're, we're, we're leaving this up to the discretion of each individual judge and, you know, some judges might not be as considerate to, you know, the sensitivities of this case. I feel like, you know, whether you capture something or not, like journalists are asking for this footage should be off limits. Like this shouldn't even come up. Yeah. Right. So we're in this situation. And I wonder if, um, if we're, if it's becoming more flagrant, the asks perhaps because of the climate, the political climate that we're yeah. in and the, really abrasive relationship that we are now facing in the United States between the media and law enforcement and the, you know, just how every, the media is portrayed these days as an enemy of the people and things like this. And I think, um, just the fact, like, I would, I would be curious in other protest situations in the past, if the media were asked for their outtakes to find vandals and looters, like, you know, did this happen 10 years ago. I mean, I'm sure we can find protests, riots, whatever, and find a similar example. But, you know, in the current climate, political climate, I'm wondering how much that's a force because, you know, you're seeing journalists get shot with these projectiles all the time and injured and hit in the eye and, and protesters as well. And it's, it's just a really hostile uh, environment and relationship between law enforcement and the media. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is a good question. And I perhaps uh, pose that to you you know, a point of contact within the NPPA because, of course, they're the ones who you always see commenting on these type of stories, you know, saying like, hey, this is a egregious, flagrant abuse of uh, journalistic rights. And, you know, I was thinking about that. You know, you mentioned, obviously, there's people on the you know media side and whatnot, the victims, so to speak, of police brutality and, and other sort of um, instances like that where they are using their... Like if I'm if I'm attacked, right? I'm gonna use. I have it on camera that you're attacking me. You're damn well sure believe I'm gonna use my footage to defend, you know, and show that sort of um, interaction, sure. right? But then again, that's still my choice. No one's being, no one's ordering me to use my own content in my own defense, or you know, right. like for instance, um, I mean, shoe on the other foot, Evelyn. You you capture a, a protester getting, you know, beaten up by the police or you know whatever. You know, do you do you feel a sort of service to that protester or that person, in in the case if they're fighting the police or something or going for a wrongful injury suit, you know, and they said, hey, can you please give me some of your unpublished photos so I can use that as evidence in my case? You know, what would you do in that instance? Well, that's a really good question. Um, well, that's different. Um, let me think of the best way to explain. I mean, the police are asking to go through footage looking for potential evidence of a crime that was committed not by them but in public, like doing the, using your imagery to as an investigative well, It's team, not even an ask. It's right? an order. That's a subpoena, right? In order. If I have an image, 
of not just somebody getting arrested, but let's say somebody like George Floyd was filmed being killed with his uh, police officer, Derek Chauvin, with his knee on on his neck for eight minutes and ultimately led to his death. Okay, like, yes, you should use that imagery to, um, you know, and, and that was a cell phone video. But, you know, if I had an image of of someone doing something wrong to another human being where they were being hurt, whatever, and it was completely wrong. Um, it would be hard to make the case that, you know, I shouldn't use my imagery. Now, the, the, the person, and maybe it's like a little late in the day and I'm just thinking this all out, but it is different than the setup of like the police trying to get image images to, you know, first of all, this is like a car, it's not a murder, but I don't even want to like draw those distinctions because I don't think, I just think it should be off limits. Like it is not our job to do the police's work and which would then therefore endanger us. Police, the police are also public servants. So if I did have an image of a police officer doing something, you know, wrong, illegal, hurting another human being that just goes completely, you know, they should be punished for or should be investigated, let's say. Um, you know, I think... Well, there's I, a power dynamic be, there, too. I mean, you're talking about a person of authority versus a person who's, right. you know, just a regular citizen. Right. I mean, I would find it hard in that capacity to just say, no, I'm not going to use this, you know, I have this evidence because in what what case wouldn't I want to do that? The difference between the police wanting to get these images is like they want it, they, you know, it's a different, it's a different set of parameters. It's like, um, it's it's not really the same. I mean, I can see you're, you're making a good point and I want to articulate it clearly, but I have to sort of think about how to explain that. Clearly, but I think you get what I'm saying. Like, the parameters are different. It's like, okay, there's been this, you know, public rioting, looting, and there should be public camera. I don't know why they don't have their own images of this, but um, it's not our role to do the policing in that job and give them evidence to make their job easier to go and arrest whatever you know crimes they think were being committed. No, I think it's not a black and white issue. It's not exactly clear. In certain instances, there's a, a definitely some shades of gray with regard to you know, decisions when you're out there and what you do with your imagery and who you support, who you protect, who you provide you know assistance to. Um, and again, I think regardless of anything, it should be up to the individual person what they want to do with their own imagery. If if they and it's also. Oh, go ahead. No, I didn't I interrupt gonna, you. I was, you know, again, in my opinion, I think, again, it should just be something like whether you witness a crime against one person against another, whether that's person, you know, protester attacking and hurting a police officer or a police officer hurting a protester or any situation where two people are, you know, engaging with one another and there is a disparity there or one person is hurting another and you capture that, you know, it has to be up to you as the person individually. Do you want to go forward and use your evidence, and I think that should be up to the individual person versus a subpoena-ordered situation. Because once the subpoena order becomes something, it takes that control out of you. But again, the outsiders don't see that. The outsiders don't care. They just see, oh, you with a camera, and that's why we're getting to this instance where you see it all the time, and I see it on these Facebook forums, especially in New York during the City Hall protests, like constant attacks of photojournalists just trying to do their job by protesters who were just saying like nope you can't shoot here you can't shoot here like guys 
you have your First Amendment right to protest. I have my First Amendment right to capture you protesting, okay? We need to be on the same... Well, uh, to that to that point that you're making, though, is it really up to the individual? Because I look at the press as, like, an, a First Amendment-type right. Like, we are an institution, right. the fourth estate. And this is an issue of, like, the state compelling us to help them versus the citizen, you know, maybe make a claim against the state or those in power, back to that power imbalance right. that you're talking right. about. So different rules here. And, you know, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, it, you're right, it's not black and white. There could be a, you know, a case where it, it's not, not about right or wrong or police being good versus bad or citizens being good versus bad where, Yes, there may be a time, but um, that you do want to share some some evidence. But in the principle here is protecting journalists' freedom, access, their ability, and the greater good that their coverage, you know, provides, which is a check on power ultimately. So if the power then can access your images, so I think that's why we have to look at it broadly and just kind of all of these things become off limits, right? Like a shield. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, you, that can definitely be a way to look at it, absolutely. I mean, sort of a sort of a blanket response or at least a, a blanket way to look at it to say, like, hey, you know, I have to protect the integrity of not only, you know, my right to perform and do my job as a photojournalist, but all photojournalists, right? Because it's not just you, because your actions can affect others and can present a negative um sort of just general perception of photojournalists who are trying to do the job. You know, you can say it's like, okay, it's not an isolated incident with me and what I'm doing. It's going to permeate throughout the rest of the industry. Right. Yes. All right. Well, well, we'll follow up this story and see how it changes over time. I'm definitely eager to see what the final outcome will be and what, what it is. And I, again, like I, I'm now going to do some research and talk to some people and find out what, you know, how is this issue uh, affecting the larger visual journalism community? Because I'm sure there are probably instances of this going on right now that we don't even know about. It's not making the news, and it's perhaps maybe smaller news organizations or news organizations that might be more um, prone to support uh, one side or Absolutely. another. You're breaking. Well, I, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, again, just we'll look at the larger picture for this for sure. Absolutely. All right, well, I think that's going to end this week's show. Sort of uh, a little bit more technical difficulties than uh, normal, uh, but glad to have uh, you on, Evelyn, to talk about this very important issue and get your thoughts on it. All right, is there anything else that you'd like to add or throw out there before we sign off? No, just glad to be here. I'll see you. This is definitely, I think, really all of these topics are just so pertinent. So I think each week it's like nice to sort of touch touch on them because these protests are continuing and we're facing every day the the climate's changing so i think it's exciting and it's 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 important to kind of keep keep it in the keep the the discussion going so yeah looking forward to next awesome week. all right yeah no, there's again there'll be more stories next week for sure on the same topic protests are not going yep. away anytime soon nope all right well i think that's going to end for this week's show thank you all for listening or watching 
uh, Around the Lens, episode 236. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please go to AroundTheLens.com and find links to all of our social media and our Patreon if you'd like to help donate the show and promote and support what we're doing here. And make sure to check out my commentary on uh, Are We in the Golden Age of Visual Journalism? Let me know. Leave your comments on that uh, YouTube channel um, episode and really want to kind of get your thoughts on it. So let's continue the conversation online. All right. For Evan Hochstein, I'm David J. Murphy. This has been episode 236 of Around the Lens, and we are out. Thanks for listening to Around the Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. All right, Evelyn. To continue the conversation, head on over to one of our social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. To support the show financially, it's, it's consider donating to us via some, Patreon. I think it's I'm, For I'm show notes from this week's episode and links to everything to else we talked about, just go to our website, AroundTheLens.com. Finally, you know, if you or someone you know might be a good guest for the show, you know, though, get in touch with us via um, email at info at AroundTheLens.com. schedule or cancel some of the upcoming episodes um, because of... I'm, I'm going to be doing...